Chapter 5, more on the gospel of the kingdom, including its Old Testament background. Our survey of the Bible so far has revealed the supremely important fact that Jesus was a tireless and impassioned preacher of the gospel of the kingdom. To confirm this simple fact, please look at Matthew 4.17, Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35. Then Luke 4, verse 43, Luke 8, verse 1, and Luke 9, verse 11, to see that Jesus always spoke about the kingdom before and after the cross. See Acts 1, verse 3. Paul was faithful to Jesus by preaching exactly the same gospel of the kingdom, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verse 24 and 25, and Acts 28, verse 23 and 31. There's only one gospel message. It's for everyone. It's called the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus preached that kingdom gospel message as the only message able to solve the human problem of mortality. Jesus claimed that he alone could teach the public the secret of immortality, how to get saved. And he claimed that the kingdom would one day mean a solution to the problems of the whole world. Jesus made it quite clear that his whole activity centered on the preaching of the kingdom, good news or gospel. That is what he was sent to do, as he declared in that memorable verse in Luke 4, verse 43. That verse is one of those spectacular master texts which will let you in on the whole marvelous Bible story. It must follow then from Luke 4, 43 that the disciples of Jesus would imitate their rabbi and master and would themselves be energetic preachers of the kingdom of God. The idea is simply this. When Jesus left the earth after his resurrection from the dead, he ensured that his work of preaching the kingdom would continue. He had carefully trained his first followers, an inner circle of executives sharing his work, for this kingdom task. His final instructions to them in the famous Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, were that they were to preach exactly the same gospel as he had preached. That gospel was, however, now to go to all the nations and not only to Israel. The kingdom gospel was now offered to everyone as it is still today. As the first followers of Jesus came to the end of their lives, they saw to it that their successors, thoroughly trained in the gospel of the kingdom, would carry on the work. I should add that the apostles were the capital A, and I note that the New Testament uses the word apostle in the secondary sense also as a missionary or supervisor of a number of churches. The apostles with a capital A in the primary sense, were distinguished by having personally seen Jesus after he was resurrected, 
and they were accredited by the amazing signs and wonders they performed. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. The apostles then were not replaced, and we do not have them today. But we can learn from them and catch the spirit of their gospel of the kingdom, the gospel for all nations. But notice what learned commentators have observed. America's leading church planter says this, I quote, I honestly cannot remember any pastor whose ministry I've been under actually preaching a sermon on the kingdom of God. I now realize that I have never preached a sermon on it. Where has the kingdom been? That's a quotation from Peter Wagner in his book, Church Growth and the Whole Gospel. An expert on Christian missions said this, When is the last time you heard a sermon on the kingdom of God? Frankly, I'd be hard put to recall ever having heard a solid exposition of the kingdom. How do we square this silence with the widely accepted fact that the kingdom of God dominated our Lord's thought and teaching. That's from the magazine Missiology in 1980. A Roman Catholic Bible teacher said this, to my amazement, the kingdom of God played hardly any role in the systematic theology I'd been taught in the seminary. That's from the Roman Catholic B.T. Viviano in his book, The Kingdom of God in History. An Archbishop of Canterbury said this, To us it is quite extraordinary that the Kingdom of God appears so little in the theology and religious writings of almost the entire period of Christian history. Certainly in Matthew, Mark and Luke, the kingdom has a prominence that could hardly be increased. That's from Archbishop William Temple in his book, Personal Religion and the Life of Fellowship. An evangelical writer on the gospel said this, How much have you heard about the kingdom of God? It's not our language, but it was Jesus' prime concern. That's from Michael Green, speaking at the Lausanne International Conference on World Evangelization in 1974. The historian H.G. Wells said, As remarkable is the enormous prominence given by Jesus to the teaching of what he called the kingdom of God and its comparative insignificance in the procedure and teaching of most of the Christian churches. This doctrine of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, which was the main teaching of Jesus and which plays so small a part in Christian creeds, is certainly one of the most revolutionary doctrines that ever stirred and changed human thought. Is it any wonder that to this day, this Galilean is too much for our small hearts? as from H.G. Wells's Outline of History. 
I invite you to ponder these amazing, extraordinary statements from top church authorities. Do you see that Jesus' gospel of the kingdom is missing from what we call Christianity? In a striking saying in Jesus' prophecy discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus said, quote, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world to all the nations, and then the end of the present age will come. Matthew 24, verse 14. The end of the age means, of course, the time of his return to take charge of the kingdom of God worldwide. Before that amazing event, the world must be duly warned that God is about to step in massively and decisively. The preaching of the Christian gospel of the kingdom is the divine statement of intention on the part of God and Jesus. It's a promise to those who heed and a threat to the unrepentant, a promise and a menace. The world is given advanced knowledge of what God is going to do. He's going to have to intervene to save the world from its own perverse ways. We are destroying ourselves. The world is full of injustice and tragedy. We are to heed the warning issued by Jesus in his kingdom gospel and believe the message about the kingdom and the death and resurrection of Jesus who died to reconcile wayward human beings to God. And he died so that we might be forgiven for all of our failures, not least our rejection of his gospel about the kingdom. Repentance, of course, implies that we begin to obey Jesus. Forgiveness is pointless if we continue in disobedience. Thus, Jesus begins his ministry by commanding repentance and belief in the gospel of the kingdom. See Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and verses 14 and 15. I want now to take you back into the Old Testament, which Jesus knew in detail and loved so much. Particularly, let's look at the book of Daniel, who worked in the great city of Babylon in modern Iraq, 50 miles south of Baghdad. And this was in the 6th century BC. Daniel was one of several royal young men who had been deported to Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar invaded and conquered his country, Judah. This event happened in about 605 BC. Daniel was given a broad outline of the history of the Middle East as it would unfold. Or rather, he was privileged to see in advance what would happen there at specific times in history. This information was provided for him when he interpreted a dream given to the king of Babylon. The king had seen a colossal statue. It consisted of a head of fine gold, chest and arms of silver, stomach and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of a mixture of iron and baked clay. You'll find that in Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 45. Daniel was able, through inspiration from God, to explain to the king the meaning of the dream vision. 
The head of the statue represented the king of Babylon himself, Nebuchadnezzar. The trunk stood for the following empire in Babylon, namely the empire of the Medes and Persians. I note that some commentators have taken the kingdom of the Medes to be a different kingdom from that of the Persians. The interesting point about the statue is that it's centered in Babylon from top to bottom. The third section of the statue pictured the Greek kingdom, which ruled over the same general area. And then the fourth kingdom, most violent of them all, pictured a final Babylonian kingdom. The final kingdom is identified as one of four divisions of the Greek kingdom in Daniel 8 and as a kingdom of the north in chapter 11. The Greek Syrian kingdom of the 2nd century BC with Antiochus Epiphanes as its cruel leader foreshadowed the final ruthless kingdom of the statue. That final form was pictured as having ten toes, and as we will see, there would also be a final eleventh power, a contemporary of the ten final rulers, who would be a single destructive antichrist. The book of Revelation adds further details to this vision, especially in chapters 13 and 17. In the book of Revelation, the final wicked individual is called the beast. You'll find that in Revelation 11, verse 7, Revelation 13, verses 4 to 7, Revelation 17, verse 8, and verse 11, and verse 12, 16, 17, and 19. Paul referred to him as the man of sin, or man of lawlessness. You'll find that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 10. Jesus referred to the same Antichrist as the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to, as we read in Mark 13, verse 14. The Bible is united in its testimony to a future wicked person who will embody all that opposes God and his plan, he'll be a direct tool of the devil. What is to happen when the final beast power comes to an end? When the time of great trouble or great tribulation is over? You read about the great tribulation in Matthew 24, 21 and Daniel 12, verse 1. See also Daniel 7, verses 21 to 27. The answer to that question is directly related to the Christian gospel, since Jesus found in that revealed dream the vision of the kingdom in which he expected to rule. That kingdom is beautifully described in the vision of chapter 2 of Daniel as a, quote, stone cut out without hands, as to say, a stone supernaturally produced. That stone struck the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream on its brittle feet, and the whole colossus collapsed at once. The stone was the kingdom of God. The stone pictured the kingdom of God arriving. Here is Daniel's inspired interpretation. 
I quote, In the days of those final kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It will break in pieces all those former kingdoms and will itself endure forever. You'll find that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. It's to be a kingdom not in heaven, but under the whole heaven. Daniel 7, verse 27. The goal of the Bible story is a kingdom on a renewed earth and never a kingdom off in a distant so-called heaven. It's called the kingdom of heaven because the God of heaven will bring it into existence on earth. And Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, will be in charge of it. It's the kingdom of God because God is going to bring it into being on earth when Jesus returns. Kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven have the same meaning exactly. This is precisely the kingdom of God which Jesus made the center of his gospel. It's the kingdom for which the church members have been taught to pray, quote, your kingdom come. It's the time, as the next line of the Lord's Prayer tells us, when the will of God will be done on earth. And when, as Jesus promised, the faithful will, quote, inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5, and rule with Christ on earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. The Christian gospel is lost when Jesus' point of reference to the Hebrew Bible's idea of the kingdom is suppressed. Once the roots of the saving gospel are discarded, then it becomes possible for the uninstructed to imagine the gospel of the kingdom as any form of vague spirituality. Christianity, in fact, is messianism, as taught by Messiah Jesus. But the Jesus currently presented to the public is often almost entirely unmessianic. I think it's fair to say that many church members do not know quite what they are praying for when they say, Thy kingdom come. It's not a general wish that things may go better now. It certainly does not mean, may your present kingdom spread. It is a prayer and a cry that God would send Jesus to intervene in human affairs and provide us with a government which really works. It points to and longs for a time when, quote, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as much as the waters cover the sea. You'll find that text in Isaiah 11 verse 9. Even wild animals will live peacefully together. The nations will thankfully give up international warfare forever. Senseless violence, which now kills and maims, will be no more. No one will be allowed to build a tank or point a weapon threateningly at another human being. When the kingdom comes, the nations are going to melt down their terrifying weapons of destruction into farm tools. It will be illegal to build lethal weapons. You'll find that in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4. Peace will be mandatory. People will soon learn 
that there's a better way of organizing ourselves. Conflicts of all sorts will be resolved. The Messiah, who will then be present on earth, will arbitrate national disputes and formerly hostile nations like Assyria and Egypt will rejoice in a common faith and be at peace with each other and with Israel. You can catch a glimpse of that wonderful coming society in Isaiah chapter 19, verses 22 to 25. The Old Testament prophets repeatedly speak of this glorious time coming. Even nature is going to reflect the dramatically different conditions across the globe. The lion is going to lie peacefully with the lamb, and children will play unharmed with now poisonous snakes. A veritable paradise will return to the earth. See Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25, and so on. Daniel speaks of that kingdom to come as a kingdom, quote, under the whole heaven. Daniel 7, verse 27. This is a kingdom quite different from any of the popular and mistaken notions of a kingdom in heaven or in the sky. The Bible nowhere speaks of us floating as souls in the upper atmosphere. The idea is no more than a popular fairy tale. The whole point of the biblical story is that God is going to succeed in bringing about peace on earth. If he were to scrap the planet and take everyone off to heaven, there would be no resolution of his great immortality project on earth. Paradise was once here on earth, and it's going to be restored. But only those who prepare for this event and help to promote it so that others can enjoy it too will be in that kingdom on earth. The essence of true faith is to believe in Jesus as the executive of God's grand design for our planet. At present, the deeply ingrained idea that we're supposed to go to heaven has all but submerged Jesus' outstanding utterance that, quote, the meek are going to inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5, quoting from Psalm 37, verse 11. This revealing teaching of Jesus about the kingdom needs to replace all the careless language we now hear about, quote, going to heaven. If we read the Bible with an honest desire to understand its grand promise, we would do well to drop all reference to, quote, heaven as our future home and honor Jesus by imitating his language about the future kingdom of God on earth. Is it unreasonable to expect Christians to sound like Jesus when they speak of their aims and hopes? The book of Daniel is a marvelous treasure of background information to Jesus' preaching of the kingdom. In chapter 7, we learn that just before the kingdom comes, a terrible and beast-like kingdom will dominate the politics of at least the Middle East. It will be led by an anti-Christian figure called in the book of Revelation, the Beast, and by Paul in 2 Thessalonians, the Man of Sin. 
Jesus spoke of this agent of evil who would destroy on a large scale just before the coming of the kingdom. This tyrant of evil is known also as the Antichrist. 1 John 2 verse 18 The apostles taught that the lying spirit and tendency of Antichrist was and is already powerfully at work in society. The final individual Antichrist has not yet appeared. The only defense against falling for the lies of this evil person is, quote, the love of the truth in order to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10. Daniel in vision saw both a government and its leader as a final form of evil human rule. He saw, quote, a little horn. A horn in the Bible pictures a ruler. Daniel was anxious to know about how the dreadful anti-Christian figure would be defeated. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the one so different from the others and so terrifying. It devoured and crushed its victims with iron teeth and bronze claws, and it trampled what was left beneath its feet. I also asked about the ten horns on the fourth beast's head and the little horn that came up afterward and destroyed three of the other horns. This was the horn that seemed greater than the others and had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and was defeating them. Until the Ancient One came and judged in favor of the holy people of the Most High. Then the time arrived for the holy people, the saints, to take over the kingdom. Daniel 7, verses 19 to 22. That critical moment of time will be at the end of the Great Tribulation in the future. It will be marked by the return of Jesus in power and glory to establish the kingdom on earth. Let us summarize what we've seen in these verses. There'll be a brief time of domination by the Antichrist. Then his power will be permanently removed. Note the spectacular solution to the chaos brought about by the reign of Antichrist. Quote, but in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom. They will rule forever and ever. Daniel 7 verse 18. Jesus echoed this promise when he said to his followers, Don't be afraid, little flock. It gives your father great pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12 verse 32. The vision of Daniel 7 shows that the saints are going to receive the authority to rule with Jesus. Daniel 7 makes this point three times, concluding with this grand vision of the kingdom. First, a short burst of evil as the Antichrist is on a rampage. Then, the blessed relief to be brought by the kingdom of God. I quote, He will defy the Most High and wear down the holy people of the Most High. 
He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws, and they'll be placed under his control for a time, times and half a time. But then the court will pass judgment, and all his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. They will rule forever, and all rulers will serve and obey them. You'll find that in Daniel 7, verses 25 to 27. This is what Jesus meant by his promise that his followers would inherit the land or the earth, Matthew 5, verse 5, and rule the world with him. See Revelation 5, verse 10. Daniel's reaction to what he had seen was alarm. It should likewise capture our imagination and interest. I quote, that was the end of the vision. I, Daniel, was terrified by my thoughts, and my face was pale with fear, and I kept these things to myself. Daniel 7, verse 28. Today the revelations Daniel received are public information, and should be passed on to others. Later chapters of Daniel give more detail about that final evil ruler who will be replaced by Jesus and his kingdom. He is called the King of the North in Daniel 11, and after a dramatic military career, will, quote, come to his end, Daniel 9.26, the second half of the verse, Come to his end, that is, in Israel. Here are the words of Daniel. I quote, He, the final king of the north, will enter the glorious land of Israel, and many nations will fall. But Moab, Edom, and the best part of Ammon will escape. He will conquer many countries, and Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the gold, silver, and treasures of Egypt, and the Libyans and Ethiopians will be his servants. But then news from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in great anger to destroy many as he goes. He will halt between the glorious holy mountain and the sea, and will pitch his royal tents there. But while he's there, his time will suddenly run out and there will be no one to help him. you find that in Daniel chapter 11, verses 41 to 45. The final days of the evil king of the north will involve the world in a time of great unparalleled tribulation, but the blessed relief of the kingdom of God will put an end to that terrible period of suffering. Daniel described those future times like this. I quote, At that time Michael the archangel, who stands guard over your nation, will arise. Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. But at that time every one of your people, whose name is written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who are sleeping in the dust will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like stars forever. But you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret. Seal up the book until the time of the end. Many will rush here and there, and knowledge will increase. End of quotation from Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Jesus, in his famous prophecy discourse in Matthew 24, likewise spoke of this final time of unprecedented great tribulation, quoting and elaborating on the verses he found in Daniel. Jesus said, I quote, Then there will be a great tribulation such as has never occurred before and never will again. And unless that tribulation was cut short, no one would be left alive. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. And I quote again, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, as Jesus went on to say, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in power and he will gather his elect. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. The picture of the future is not complicated. Before the arrival of Jesus to take up his position as world ruler in the kingdom, the world will experience a unique burst of agony just as a woman goes through birth pangs, as Jesus said. The time of anguish is a necessary prelude to the rebirth of the world, which will follow the time of great tribulation. When the world is finally reborn under its new government, directed by Jesus himself, the apostles will occupy positions of servant rulership, and Jesus told them, quote, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging, or rather administering, the twelve tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, verse 28. Later, Jesus confirmed this event. Quote, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Matthew 25, verse 31. I'm hoping that these details about how present world history will end will recall the basic outline we described earlier from other Bible verses. You see in Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3, the resurrection of the faithful dead and their glorious transformation as shining beings. Immortality is conferred on them by that resurrection. Jesus loved this passage of Daniel and quoted it in his own description of the same events. Jesus spoke of, quote, the resurrection of the just. In Luke 14, verse 14, Jesus was deeply interested in prophecies of the future. As Matthew reports it, Jesus spoke of the faithful Christians, quote, shining forth like the sun in its strength 
in the kingdom of their father. That's in Matthew 13, verse 43, quoting Daniel 12, verse 3. He also described the appalling fate of non-believers. I quote, The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are separated out and burned, so it will be at the end of the age. I, the Son of Man, will send my angels, and they will remove from my kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the furnace and burn them. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the godly will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone who is willing to hear should listen and understand. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 13, verses 39 to 43. All this material about the future of the world and of humanity was of the greatest interest and concern to Jesus as he preached the gospel of the kingdom. We should etch into our memories these indelible images of the future of the world. The Bible is a vivid and exciting book designed to capture our full interest. The kingdom of God is coming and we are to be prepared by believing and living out those marvelous promises of a sound and permanently stable government under the supervision of Jesus and his chosen associates. Social justice is notably absent in so much of our world. All that injustice is going to come to an end. A revolution in a new government is coming to the earth. Jesus will be its first and supreme president and king. That's what it means to be the Messiah. He is God's chosen world ruler. As, quote, prince of peace, he's going to achieve what no one so far has been able to produce, that is to say, peace across the globe for all peoples. At his first coming, Jesus announced God's future reign. And then he died at the hands of evil religious opponents and other fanatics. His death was reckoned by God as a fitting substitute for the death we all deserve. He, quote, covered for us, relieving us of the death penalty we deserved. We are spared and forgiven. Forgiveness is obtained by embracing that substitutionary death of Jesus for every human being and by believing also in Jesus' kingdom gospel. See Mark chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Daniel provides us not only with a great vision of the resurrection, he impresses on us also the condition of the dead before the resurrection. Like Jesus and the New Testament, Daniel had never heard a word about, quote, souls going to heaven to be with God. He and Jesus were firmly of the opinion that the dead are now dead, unconscious, 
in their graves. This makes the promise of future resurrection and a return to life all the more riveting. I quote, Many of those who are sleeping in the dust of the ground will awake some to the life of the age to come. Daniel 12 verse 2. This simple verse tells us what the dead are doing and where they're doing it. They are, quote, asleep, unconscious, in the ground. But when Jesus comes back, they're going to wake from the sleep of death and from then on live forever. They will be given what the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament tell us is the life of the age to come, vaguely translated as eternal life. Daniel was comforted by the prospect of rising from the sleep of death. The angel told him, As for you, go your way until the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise again to receive the inheritance set aside for you. That's in Daniel 12, verse 13. This is the biblical hope so absent from preaching in church. In Daniel 12, verse 2, Daniel meant by this famous phrase, life of the age, the life of the age to come. Since it is to be life following the future resurrection, it is naturally the life of the age to come. The age to come, of course, is the kingdom of God, the subject of Jesus' gospel. In the New Testament, the age to come has the same meaning as the kingdom of God. In our Bibles, you'll find this expression, the life of the age to come, translated as everlasting or eternal life. This is an inaccurate translation and hides from you the fact that the future kingdom is going to replace the present evil age dominated by Satan. Satan is said to be, quote, the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, and in that capacity he is, quote, deceiving the whole world, Revelation 12, verse 9. His control over this dark present evil age is so widespread that John the Apostle said, and I quote, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, verse 19. That's a sort of blanket coverage and suggests that we must work hard to free ourselves from the devil's deception and darkness. We must rid ourselves of his clever lies and embrace the truth. This is the only way to be safe and to live within the grace of God. Above all, we should not be complacent. We should earnestly pursue truth. The power and promise and spirit of that future kingdom can be tasted now in advance. Christians at conversion are transferred into the kingdom in the sense that they are candidates for immortality when the kingdom comes. Colossians 1 verse 13. At conversion and belief in the gospel of the kingdom, Christians cease to be part of this world or age and take on a new loyalty to Jesus 
as king of the kingdom. Christians are now heirs to the kingdom, joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8 verse 17. They will inherit the kingdom when Jesus comes back. Christians, as we will see, are now to undergo a rebirth. Jesus said it plainly, you must be born again, John 3 verse 3. Without rebirth now in this present life, we cannot enter the kingdom when it comes. Rebirth is absolutely essential if we are to be prepared for the life in the future kingdom. Jesus instructed a rabbi, Nicodemus, who came to see him, quote, unless a person is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven. John 3, verse 3 and 5. Jesus made intelligent reception of the kingdom gospel a necessary condition for being saved. I quote, I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Luke 18, verse 17. How this rebirth happens by receiving the gospel as Jesus preached it we will explain in greater detail in a later chapter. Please read on. From this present chapter, I hope you will see that the prophet Daniel was deeply important to Jesus, as he should be to us. It is impossible to grasp the saving message of Jesus if we do not know about the background to his teaching in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. All the prophets of the Old Testament look forward to the time coming when peace is going to prevail all over the world. The kingdom of God is going to put an end to all the problems we now face as individuals and as society. Daniel, in his seventh chapter, was given a grand revelation of the future activity of the Son of Man and his associates. The Son of Man means the human being. The title refers to Jesus and secondarily to the followers of Jesus who will, as a group, administer the affairs of the kingdom when it comes. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He knew about his own destiny in the future of the world and he found that destiny described in Daniel's visions. Jesus is the supreme human being, supernaturally begotten by the one God of the Bible, the Father of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect model of a human being in relation to God. He faithfully carried out the will of God despite terrible opposition and trial. Jesus was also the model preacher of the gospel the gospel about the kingdom of God. He successfully carried out his commission to preach the gospel of the kingdom. As he said, preaching the kingdom gospel was the purpose for which God had commissioned him. Luke 4.43 In our next chapter, we need to trace the Bible drama further back to the time of Abraham, some 2,000 years before Jesus was born. And in the chapter after that, to David, 
who lived approximately a thousand years after his ancestor Abraham and a thousand years before Jesus' birth. As we will see, Abraham and David are key figures in God's great kingdom immortality program. That is why the New Testament's very first verse introduces Jesus as the descendant of Abraham and David. Matthew 1 verse 1. They are prominent members of the great kingdom drama. Both David and Abraham were especially anointed by the Spirit of God. Everyone who wants to understand the gospel will need to know how these great men fit into God's plan. They too are models for us and they underwent some of the same trials and tests which Christians should expect. God and Jesus need to know what we really are made of. God will not appoint rulers in his kingdom who have not been thoroughly groomed for royal office and found to be irreproachable and reliable.